Philippians 3. If you want to find Philippians 3, you can do that. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 14. That's where we'll be continuing in our, our Easter Tide series um, and enjoying that. Uh, looking forward to it. Let me pray and then we'll, um, we'll read Philippians 3. Father, we ask in these moments that you would um, hey, grant us discerning hearts that we might be able to hear your word um, and know not just what it means but what it means for us what it means for us to respond to it to live into it to allow it to take root in us and we pray that you would speak with clarity in Jesus name Amen Philippians 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Amen. So I was thinking about it this year. Every year, I feel like, uh, I don't pay a lot of attention to basketball, but every year, once a year, I tend to pay attention to basketball, and that's during the NCAA basketball tournament, right? Because we all have a little bit of a stake in that. We don't know what we're doing, but we fill out those brackets anyway. 
and somehow, as you pay attention, you begin to realize every year there's always some little controversy, some issue that everybody's got to pick a side on eventually. And this year was, was no different, right? Some years it's like, will my toddler's bracket do better than my own, right? Is that going to happen? That's a real possibility, and it actually happens sometimes, right? This year it was this interesting moment, actually in the women's tournament, that continued to be a conversation after it was over for a week or two, really, maybe still. One of the, the like, highlighted, most talented players in the women's game at this point, who played for Iowa, mimics this celebratory gesture in the middle of a game, and people start to talk about it. Only days later, she suffers this humiliating fate when she loses in the championship game and the highlight, it seems, of the whole game is that she is mocked with the same celebratory gesture. Somebody else does it, but she's the one who's now kind of being put under the microscope. And thankfully, social media was there <laughs> to help us see, right, this incredibly riveting development in women's athletics so that we could understand it. So those of us who don't actually care about sports would now know and be able to pick a side on this thing and give our opinion on it. Yes, we thank you, social media, right? So there's this interesting thing, right? They are announcing to us, gasp, that trash talk is a thing in basketball, apparently. Right? Who knew? Like, this is crazy. We didn't know this, right? And it becomes this much bigger conversation on the way we see female athletes, and in particular, African-American female athletes, and the way we talk about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all from a conversation that, honestly, I think has been going on most of my life, right? Should such things be done? Should you celebrate in that kind of way? Is that appropriate or is it not? To flex or not to flex? You have to pick a side. Everybody's got a side, and they're pretty passionate about it, it seems like, over and over again. And I say all of this because what's interesting about Philippians 3 is it looks like Paul is flexing. It looks like Paul is, is flexing, and he's definitely mocking somebody in the process. Now, you may not know that because, like, in the background, there's this thing that's been going on. In the church at Philippi, there's a group of, of Jewish Christians, right? These are people who have been Jews most of their life, but now they have converted to the, this new Christian faith. And they come into the church at Philippi, much like what's happening at the church at Galatia, and they are bringing a new teaching with them. They teach, obviously, that Jesus is Lord. That is good, right? But they also teach that the ancient practices of Judaism, the law, as a whole, but specifically things like circumcision, are still necessary for a person who's a believer to be righteous in the eyes of God. Now, this is news to Gentile believers who were not, like Paul, circumcised on the eighth day of their life at the temple, presented to everyone. This is news, and it's causing a, a pretty significant rift. In essence, they're saying, Jesus is important. Jesus is Lord, but you cannot forget all of the other requirements. Like that was maybe the single most important issue of the earliest days of the church. What are we going to do with this? How do we fit the law into the church? Like what does the law look like now? What does it mean to be righteous? And you could say, even though that was 2,000 years ago, like, we're still having that conversation. What does it even mean to be righteous? What does a righteous life look like? And not 
just in the sense of like, what are the requirements? What is the threshold that I have to break in order to be considered righteous, known as righteous? Not just what is the standard that I'm measured by that makes me righteous, but more simple than that. What does that word even mean to us, righteous? How do we understand it? Because it, it's clear in the passage that the way Paul understand it, understands it is different from the way this group of, of Jewish believers who are now coming into the church and teaching this, but they understand it one way. And you could say further from that is our understanding of it. We see it even more differently. And the whole passage hinges on this idea. What does it look like? What does it mean to be righteous in God's eyes? Now, in Easter, we started last week in this series exploring kind of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And Jonathan and I have been kind of like playing around with this idea. What does it look like to inhabit the resurrection? What does it look like for the resurrection to, to take root in us, to, to live in us? What does it look like for the resurrection to take up residence in us somehow? How do we inhabit resurrection? Another angle might be, how does resurrection become habit? Not in the sense that like resurrection becomes this thing that we're doing and it becomes a habit like we normally think of it, but habit in the sense that, that a monk wakes up every day and he puts on the same garment. It is his habit, we've called it historically. How does the resurrection become a garment we are putting on day after day? We wake up and we clothe ourselves in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. We embody it. What does that look like? For resurrection to become habit, for us to inhabit the resurrection. That's what Paul is saying he wants. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is what he's after. And at the heart of this Easter conversation, right, is this idea of righteousness. And what in the world we mean when we say righteousness. Because Paul will be satisfied with nothing less than Christ's righteousness. That is where Paul wants to be found, in Christ's righteousness. In the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, that's what we find, is that God is no longer requiring us to be righteous enough. God is not saying, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, you need to be better, more righteous. Now that I have done this incredible thing for you, you must do better. Be more righteous. Instead, God is not requiring us to be righteous. God is making us righteous. God has decided to do this. God is the subject in the conversation. I am the object. God is the subject, and I am the one being acted upon. We are receivers of this righteousness, of this death-to-life transformation, and not the workers of it, right? God has decided to remake us and all of creation with us, no longer as broken and sinful, but as righteous. So resurrection, the gospel itself as a whole, it doesn't mean I'm supposed to do more or work harder or be better. It means every day I embrace a righteousness that I know is not mine, and I revel in it. I glory in a, a righteousness that 
has never been mine. I identify myself and define myself not by what I have managed to do or scratch together with my efforts. No. I embrace a righteousness that is not my own. I choose to be defined not by what I have managed to do with my life, but by what Christ has already done. That is where I want to be found. That is what I want to be known for, is the work of Christ that has already been done for me, in me. But before we can get there, right, we have to go back to that first question. We can't get away from it. What does it mean? What does it even mean when we say righteous? Because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're like me and you're like most people in our culture. The way we see righteousness seems to come from a, a very similar place. For most of like when I say what is righteous, maybe you're thinking moral or ethical goodness, Right? To be righteous means to be morally or ethically good. In some sense, like you do more good things than bad things. You're righteous. Or maybe you do a whole lot of good things and very little in terms of bad things. Therefore, you are righteous. And you now, as a believer, you define your life by this good and no longer by sinful brokenness or evil or whatever. Therefore, you're righteous. All of that seems to come, when we think about it, from our Western European ideas of, of justice and our justice system. We think about these things in the same sort of way, right? What it means to be righteous is to be acquitted, to no longer be guilty. I have been somehow made innocent, right? We think of these sorts of things. The sum total of my life is more good than bad. Therefore, I am righteous. And that all makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that at some level. It all makes sense if you, you think about like the Hebrew. These two words, justice and righteousness, are closely tied. So much so that when they were trying to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they only used one word for these two different concepts. They were so closely tied together. What it means for something to be just or righteous is so close that there was only one word they used in Greek. And so for us, these two things are tied together in our minds. What it means to be righteous is tied to what it means to be just in some sense. Justice and righteousness are tied, right? And so what that means is we often imagine that what it means to be righteous is to be weighed, on those scales that we're so familiar with, right? We think of justice, we think of blind lady justice holding her scales, and we see ourselves, and we see everyone else as being weighed, balanced on these scales. And the question we're forever asking at some level is, is there more good in me or evil? Is there more purity in me or, or sin? And if those scales are tipped in my direction, well, then obviously I am righteous. This is the way we see it. And that all makes sense logically. But the problem is these scales fail us because we've spent most of our lives trying to judge one another. We do it all the time, right? We're always trying to decide what we think about someone. Are they good or are they not? Are they righteous or are they, are they really who they act like they are? And we fail at it all the time. We misread people. We misunderstand people. We misjudge people over and over again. Our literal justice system 
fails us over and over again. It happens. I heard Dallas Willard, Christian philosopher, really helpful person if you haven't spent any time reading his stuff. Dallas Willard one time said, we, we tend to associate due process and justice with one another. And he, he says something really, really powerful. He says, our justice system can guarantee someone due process, but it cannot guarantee them justice. In some sense, it's misnamed. It can guarantee them due process. They will get a trial. They will be given an attorney, but that does not guarantee them justice. We all know this, and the same thing is true of our lives. Every effort we make to judge ourselves or others, if we're using this kind of scale to evaluate ourselves, we will find that simply tipping the scales in our directions doesn't mean we are righteous. It doesn't mean that we are good necessarily. It falls short. Being righteous isn't just being more good than bad. I think we all know that there must be something more to it than that. Because we call God righteous. We say that God is righteous. And when we say that God is righteous, we don't mean, well, that God is obviously more good than he is bad. I mean, there's some, some pretty terrible stuff about God, but he's more good than, than that. That's not what we mean when we say that God is righteous. We mean something more than that. We don't mean that God is morally or ethically pure. We don't mean that God is able to satisfy the requirements on this list, that God is able to live perfectly according to the rules that you and I cannot. It's more than that. It's not just God being more good than bad. And we, if we didn't know that already, we learned that in Jesus. Because the authorities of Jesus' day see him and they try to weigh him in that way. They look at Jesus and they say, well, he, he doesn't live perfectly by our law. He undermines it at every term, it seems like. He doesn't live according to our conventions. He shuns all of our conventions and our understandings of things. Therefore, Jesus of Nazareth is unrighteous. The man, they say over and over again, is a sinner. The scales fail them. Their evaluation of his righteousness, it's all wrong. It doesn't work because what we know about Jesus is that Jesus breaks the rules because he is righteous. Jesus breaks the rules because he's righteous. Now, according to our evaluation, because he breaks the rules, if we think about it as simple as, as being more good than bad or meeting some standard, then we look at Jesus and we say, well, if he's broken the rules, then obviously he is unrighteous at the simplest level. But no, Jesus is not unrighteous because he breaks the rules. He's somehow more righteous because he knows which ones need to be broken. Jesus reveals we need to understand righteousness differently. We've misunderstood it. Fleming Rutledge has said it really, really well. Uh, I've been reading uh, one of her books through Lent, and I, I didn't quite finish it. Um, but I, I love this statement she makes about righteousness. She says that righteousness is really more a verb than it is a noun. Obviously, it's a noun, but she's saying it's so active in nature, this idea, righteousness, that it's more like a verb than it is like a noun. And she says this, it's not so much that God is righteous, it's that God does righteousness. It's not so much that God is righteous, that's the way we think of it, but what that means, she's saying, is that God does righteousness. It is an active thing that he's doing in this world. That's the way the scriptures teach it. 
That's the way the Hebrews seem to understand it. Uh, Richard Hayes points it out in, in Psalm 143. So in Psalm 143, David is crying out to God. He's desperate. He needs God to intervene, to help him. And David talks about righteousness this way. He says, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and your righteousness. Come to my relief. In your faithfulness and your righteousness, come to my relief. So what David means when he says that God is righteous, obviously, is not just that he expects because God is more good than bad, he will probably recognize that what's happening to me is bad and he'll help me. No. He expects because God is righteous, when God sees what is wrong, God will act to make it right. God cannot see something wrong and not make it right. David knows this. David knows that God's righteousness is not just some state of good enough. That's, that's not what we mean. Righteousness means more than meeting the requirements of the law. It means more than living by some set of principles. It means more than meeting whatever standard you have in your mind. It's more than that. When we call God righteous, we mean we expect he will respond when he sees something wrong. God acts to make right what is wrong. When the world is not as God intends for it to be, he will respond and make it right. When we are not as God intends for us to be, God will respond and make it right because he is righteous. It's active. It is a verb. It is a thing that God does. It is not just some state of being good enough, morally perfect. And if we accept that, that God is more than just morally perfect. That being righteous means more than that. The harsh reality we have to come to grips with over and over again is that we cannot act to make what we see wrong in this world right. We are helpless to act in such a way as to make right what we see wrong in us as well. We cannot do righteousness. Every attempt is flawed. doesn't mean we don't do good things. We do lots of good things. But it is hard for us to know where it comes from hubris or arrogance or a need to be seen, some narcissistic impulse. It is hard to know. We cannot do righteousness. We fail at it over and over again. We fall short. And so we resort to what we always have, what we talked about earlier. We come back to the scales and we say, let's keep it simple. We do exactly what the religious authorities did with Jesus. And it's different for us, obviously. It looks different in our modern context than it did for them. But it's really all the same, right? In their day, they have a different worldview. They were concerned about adhering closely to the law, right? Following all the rules, doing it right. Adhering to the strictest requirements, being ritually pure, down to the smallest little minutia, right? This is the way they understood it. And if they could do this, the point was not just that they could say they were righteous, no, but in being righteous this way, God would take notice. God would favor them. God would restore them. God would restore his people, Israel. This was the idea. We've not been righteous enough, but if we are, God will respond. It was different in Philippi, though. Greek culture was different. Roman culture was different. It had become a Roman colony, and 
the thought process was different there, just like it is different in our day. Um, for them, the righteous life looked more like what the philosophers spent a lot of ta time talking about. Maybe you're familiar with the philosophic concept of the, the good life. They spent hundreds and hundreds of years prior to all of this talking about what a good life looks like. Plato thought it looked one way. Aristotle thought it looked another way. The Stoics thought it looked one way. The Epicureans thought it looked another way. All slightly different from one another. What does a good life, a life lived well, a righteous life look like? And we're still wrestling with that, right? They're all seeking the good life, just like we are. Trying to understand what that will look like. Now, we certainly don't try to adhere to some list of strict requirements. We're not trying to be morally or ethically pure. I think we've all kind of given up on that at some level. Some of that, I think, is from following Jesus. We know. In some sense, you can do that. We know from the Gospels. And you can still be self-righteous. You can still be sinful in a whole nother way. So we've kind of given up on that, but we do have a lot in common with this thing the Greeks do. We do spend a lot of our lives wondering what a righteous life looks like. What does a good life look like? And for us, I think we come down to like accolades, other people noticing, right? That means I'm righteous if other people say I am. Or maybe at like its best, like we think about like charity, like I've done some good things. Look at all of the different things I have done. I'm righteous. Success. We think about the concept of like legacy. We talk a lot about legacy sometimes. Like what, what will the legacy of our life be? Have we done enough with what God has given us? We spend our lives asking these questions, right? Have I done enough? We look at our jobs. We look at our careers, and we ask ourselves, like, have I done enough with my life? Is my life enough? Is it meaningful enough, what I've done with the years I've been given? We look at our communities. We look at our families, and we think, am I invested enough? Am I doing this good enough? Am I pouring in enough? It's the same way with our relationships. We are forever wrestling with the question, am I enough for someone else? Am I doing enough? And if I was, would I be married by now? Or if I was enough, would I be more happy in the marriage I'm already in? Am I enough? Like we're forever wrestling with this. Other times, I think we have to acknowledge that in our culture, the conversation is all about self-fulfillment. It's all about self-understanding and self-expression. We're always there, always trying to better understand self, right? And the theory is, if I could better understand myself, then I would better know how to make myself happy, the kinds of things that would satisfy me. I could live into that. And one of our highest ideals is that I cannot betray myself. I have to be true to myself. That would be the worst thing I could do, to betray myself, to not know myself or understand myself. And so we spend so much of our lives wondering who we are, trying to discover who we are and if we're actually doing with our lives what we ought to in light of who we are. Am I doing that? This is who I am. Am I living into that? Or am I not? No matter what it is, we are always trying to put our thumb on that scale to tip it in our direction so that God 
and everyone else will see, I am good enough. I am righteous enough. Always. We measure up to the standard, whatever that standard might be in our minds. We're forever trying to weigh ourselves and everybody else on these scales, always trying to tip it in whatever direction we think is right. And Paul obliterates it. Paul mocks it. He points out how silly it really is. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh we put no confidence in this standard that we are measuring ourselves by. We put no confidence in the law or some set of rules to measure our righteousness by. He says, what makes me righteous is not the law or circumcision or what I eat or the wealth I amass for myself or people's opinion of me when I walk into a room. No, none of this. It's all waste, emptiness. He says, we are the circumcision. This thing that used to be outside of us, the law, we used to be trying to live according to it because God had taught them to. Paul says, now somehow it is in us. It's not exterior to my life. By the Spirit, it is in me. God has circumcised our hearts. That's what Jeremiah was pointing to. God has written the law on our hearts we are circumcision, he says. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in our flesh. He obliterates it. But Paul's willing to play the game with us. If you want to go there with Paul, he'll go there with you. Because if anybody has reason to feel confident in the law, in doing enough, Paul says, it's me. I get it. I've played this game. I know it well. Paul is a purebred, a blue blood, born into the Jewish life. He's not a convert. No, he was born into the tribe of Benjamin. He is a part of the strictest law-abiding sect in all of Judaism. According to the law, he says, he is blameless. Anybody has reason to be confident, it's me, he says. He has tipped the scales very clearly, and everybody knows it. But, he says, whatever were gains, however I might have tipped the scales, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Being found in him, right? Listen to that language, right? And I think, honestly, some of you may be really familiar with this passage. You may know Philippians 3 pretty well, especially that part about I consider it all loss, right? It's one of Paul's most paradigmatic statements, right? Everybody knows it. It's one of his most emphatic and powerful statements. I consider it all garbage, right? Maybe you're familiar with it, but I think sometimes we misread what Paul is saying because we hear what Paul is saying and we think of our own lives or maybe somebody else that we know who tells the story of how they came to faith. And in this story, they tell you how they've left behind 
their life of promiscuity, of addiction, of brokenness, right? They've left behind their life of, of partying or, or self-centered pleasure-seeking, right? And they tell you it was worth it. It was hard, but it was worth it because knowing Christ is better than all of this. I found real satisfaction in this that I could not find in that. And all of that is true, right? But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not telling you the worst things about himself and saying, I've left all of that behind. Paul is telling you the best things he ever managed to do. Paul says, all of my greatest privileges, all of my greatest accolades, every good thing I ever managed to do, everything I'm most proud of, my righteousness, what we might think of in our culture is like his value or his worth, his meaning, all of that that he had managed to scrounge together throughout his entire life. Paul says, the best things I've ever done, it's worthless. Not just worthless, but worthless compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all garbage. It's more vulgar in the Greek. Maybe you've heard that before. Rough translation, it's BS, Paul says. It's empty. The best things I ever managed to do, all of my righteousness. It's similar to, to Isaiah saying, my righteousness is as filthy rags. But Paul felt like he needed to up the ante a little bit. Paul says, throw out whatever scale you're trying to weigh yourself on. Throw out the scale you're trying to weigh everybody else on. Stop trying to be righteous enough and be made righteous. Just embrace it. This is what God is doing in Jesus. We believe God is righteous, not because he's the only person in the whole cosmos who can live by this set of rules. We can't, he can. No, that's not what we believe. We believe God is the only person in the whole cosmos who can look at what is wrong in me, in his good creation, and he's actually able to make it right. Only he can make it right, and only he desires to make it right. Even if it costs him his own son, even if he has to suffer himself, God is righteous, we know, because he's willing to suffer at his own cost to make it right. If you think about it, in Jesus, God is breaking all of the rules that we might have used to measure someone as good or not. All of those rules are being thrown out. They're all being undermined. Think about it. Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules. God is acquitting broken, sinful people, people who are clearly guilty, and he's giving instead in their place an innocent and blameless son. That breaks all of our rules because that's not righteous. That is not just. That is what we would call a crime. Except that in this crime, God is both the perpetrator and the victim. He gets to because he's only doing it to himself. He's choosing to do this because God cannot do anything else. He is righteous. 
God has decided to remake us, to make right what is wrong. And all of that suffering, death on a cross, it's all vindicated when the same spirit given to us breathes life into Jesus' lifeless body, right? It changes everything. Paul says, that's what I want. Not to be righteous according to my way, not to be able to show everyone what I have done. I want that, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, even if it means participation in his sufferings, he says. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering, he says. Paul says, if I have to suffer, if death is a part of the path to resurrection, I will gladly go through it. There is no way to resurrection except death, except pain. We have to acknowledge this. And Paul says, abandon whatever standard you've been living by. Abandon whatever measure you have for yourself that you've been measuring others by, that you've let others measure you by. Abandon it all. Be free of it. Abandon your journey to find self-fulfillment through knowing yourself. Stop trying to find yourself, Paul says, and be found in Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness of your own. Embrace it. Be clothed in it day after day. This is what's happening in the resurrection. This is what Paul says he wants from his life. And I think some of you might go, okay, here's the problem. If you're saying everything good I have ever done doesn't matter, it's all garbage, well, then what's the point of trying? And it would seem like Paul might make that conclusion. I, I, I guess if, if what I do doesn't really have value, then I shouldn't bother. If, if Christ has done everything for me, then I guess the rest of my existence, I'm just supposed to be kind of content with that and not do anything. Like complacency seems like the logical conclusion here. I just become complacent. I don't do anything. But if you read the rest, Paul doesn't sound complacent. Paul doesn't seem like he thinks he should do less now. As if nothing he does will matter. It's the opposite. It's like knowing this resurrection, the power of Christ's resurrection, having been inhabited by the resurrection. It changes everything for him. It stirs him to something more. Paul says, I am leaving behind everything else. One thing, he says, I know. One thing I'm doing. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I press on to the goal to win the price for which Christ called me heavenward. This is what Paul is after. One thing I do, I'm forgetting everything behind me and I'm pressing toward the beauty of this resurrection. I'm pressing toward this new righteousness, this new creation that's being given to me. Paul says that is what you want. That is how you want to be measured. That is where you want to be found. Not in whatever you've done for yourself. Not in your success. Not in knowing yourself well understanding and being able to do as much as possible with what you've been given. No, you want to be found in Christ. You want to be marked and known by what he has done and not just by what you will manage to do with your life. This is 
so central to who we are. Resurrection is not an event in history. Resurrection is an active thing God is still doing. It is a present living reality. What does it mean every day for me to embrace a righteousness that is not my own? To live not as good enough, but to live as one who has been made righteousness. Not just, not one who's been forgiven. One who's been forgiven and beyond that has been made righteous in God's eyes. To live from that righteousness. To live not in this place of insecurity or fear that I'm not enough, that I'm not doing enough, that I need to do better or do more. No, I have been made righteous. I have been made enough. And I am more than equipped for whatever it is God is asking me to do. That's what we're coming to in the table. As the band comes and, and we come toward the, the body and blood of Jesus, there's this opportunity for us to consider this. A righteousness that is not my own. How do I every day embrace that more and more? How do I every day shun the idea that I need to be doing more and more and more? That I need to meet this standard that everybody else has for me or that I have for myself or that I'm holding them to? How do I embrace this thing that God has already done in me? This is the, the question of our faith, the thing we're still wrestling with. What does it mean to be righteous like this? What does it mean to do righteousness as those who've experienced resurrection? Let's pray. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this moment. And I thank you for this body and the opportunity to worship together and gather around your table. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would move among us in these moments that you would be glorified, that you would stir us to a righteous life that looks different than what we might have had in mind. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So feel free in these moments, they're going to play a song, come and, and grab a cup, tear off a piece of bread, and then move back to your seats, just hold on to that, and then we'll all come back together and do this.